Well, we're in John, so turn to John. Turn to John chapter 2. We're going verse by verse through the gospel of John. And I haven't said this before, but I say it this morning. The key word, or one of the key words in this book is believe, believe. You saw it last week, uh, the disciples when they saw Jesus um, manifest his glory by cha- turning water into wine, that transformational power of Christ. It says in verse 11 of John chapter 2, his disciples believed in him. It was probably just six of them at that moment, as we saw from chapter 1, but they believed in him. Uh, we see it this morning in verse 22, talking again about the disciples. They believed the scripture. And they believe the words of Christ. We see the very purpose of the book of John is so these things are written. John chapter 20 says, so that you might believe. Uh, He is, his purpose is that you would believe. And everything, everything in the book of John is like an arrow pointing to that purpose that you might believe. That the reader might come to faith in Christ and then have life in his name. There is life in no other name but the name of Christ. That's why we make much of Christ. Because he is the only way to God. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. We make much of him. Today, we're going to be looking at 12 through 22, verses 12 through 22. Those were read to you earlier. And a key theme of this section is worship. Worship. Worship means worth-ship. It means ascribing value to something. When you think of worship, you are ascribing value to it. And the higher you value something, the more you worship it. Uh, And the deeper you worship it, the, the more you value it. Everybody worships something or someone. That's what you were created to do. God made you to worship. He made you to worship Him. Unfortunately, it doesn't always work that way. We worship other things. In fact, Welch says in his book that Most of us, uh, when we are not worshiping God, are guilty of a worship disorder. We have found something else besides God to worship. We have put other gods before Him. We have put idols before Him. We have put distractions before Him. We have brought things into our life that block Him out, that eclipse His glory. It's a worship problem that we have most anything you're going through right now i'm sure you can relate it back to worship what and where am i looking where am i ascribing value to in my life that's not god where am i looking that is not what god would want me or what is not where god would want me to be looking he wants me to look to him and not to be distracted from that in any way. This is an interesting passage. Interesting passage. We're made to worship the true God, and at times that can be 
hindered because we look to other things. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, you are a chosen race, speaking to you and I as believers, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Now listen to this, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what we come here to do. We come here to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We ascribe value, we ascribe worth, we proclaim his excellencies, we make much of him. And like I said, worship can be defiled. Though we're called to it, it can be defiled. Turn to Isaiah 1, hold your hand in John, turn to Isaiah 1. The Jews, in the context we're looking at here, the Jews, their central place to worship God was Jerusalem. That was a that was God's presence on earth. Now understand, they didn't think that the temple was big enough to hold the infinite God. They weren't that thinking it that about it that way. Even Solomon affirms that. But there was a place that God would dwell on the earth, and it was called the temple, and it was located in Jerusalem. And that is where they were to worship God. Isaiah chapter 1 shows us how worship can be defiled, and we'll call this empty worship. They're highly religious people at this time. In Isaiah chapter 1, and their intent, get this, their intent on observing all of the Old Testament ritual and rites of worship. They are intent on that. They want to do everything that God says to do, but they're empty. They're empty in their worship. It's not real. And God condemns them. They're just going through the motions. They have all the forms in place, but they have no reality. No reality. Notice with me in verse, in verse 11. God is speaking here through the prophet Isaiah. He says this in verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 1. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. Even though I prescribed all this stuff, I take no pleasure in it. When you come to appear before me, verse 12 says, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. It's all a to me, God says, even though I prescribed it to you, the way you are doing it is offensive to me. 
Vile and empty observance. They're covering over religious, they're covering their sin with religious activity is the point. He condemns them for their sinfulness. You'll do all of this and then just go out and sin and sin and sin and do evil. Psalm 15 says this, 1 and 2, O Lord, who can abide in your tent, in your sanctuary? Who may dwell on your holy hill? He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. See, true worship is not an emptiness, it's a heart issue. It's what's in my heart. What is motivating me to worship? Is it empty, just go through the motions? Or is there a heart and love for God? That brings me to desiring to obedient, be obedient to him. Another problem in the Old Testament tells us that Israel had in their worship. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 8. Ezekiel chapter 8. This we'll call bad doctrine. Bad doctrine. Errant doctrine. In Ezekiel chapter 8, verse 9. He said to me, verse 9, Ezekiel chapter 8, and he said to me, go in, go in and see the wicked abominations that they are committing here in the temple. So I entered and I looked and behold, every form of creeping things and beast and detestable things with all the idols of the house of Israel were carved on the wall all around. Verse 11, Standing in front of them were 70 elders of the house of Israel with uh, Jezaniah the son of Shaphan standing among them, each man with a censer in his hand and the fragrance of the cloud of the incense rising. Then he said to me, son of man, do you see what the elders of the house of Israel are committing in the dark? Each man in the room of his carved images, for they say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Go down to verse 14. Then he brought me to the entrance of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, women were sitting there weeping for Tammuz. Uh, there's bad doctrine right there with Tammuz. The fertility God, the, the God who they said would die each winter because the crops would go dormant. And so they're praying she would come back to, Tammuz would come back to life and cause the crops to blossom again. Worshiping a false god. That was done by these female worshipers. Go down to verse 16. Even uh, idolizing the sun, notice in verse 16, then he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and behold, at the entrance to the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, there were about 25 men with their backs to the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east, and they were prostrating themselves eastward toward the sun. I'm just saying, you got empty hearts, and you got bad doctrine that can defile worship. You can have a wrong view of God as we see here. You can see God in your, a God you want to make in your own image or a God that you want to create yourself. You can go to worship and have wrong ideas about who God is. You can worship a God that you've sort of brought up in your own imagination. Many people do that. That is defiling worship. That is basically taking the Lord's name in vain. That's what it really is. When I think thoughts and entertain thoughts that are not true about Him. 
Well, there's another thing that defiles worship that we see in Israel, and that's happening here in John chapter 2. And it has to do with money and greed. Money and greed. It disrupts worship. It becomes the focus of our worship. And it's just like worshiping a false god. They worship the god of money, the god of greed, and covetousness. They bring things into the house of God that are distraction and things that take the focus off of him and put it onto something else. And that's what we see here in verse 6. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. Are you back in John? Go back to John chapter 2, verse 16. Notice what he says. Jesus says. He says at the end of verse 16, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. A place of business. A place of merchandise. Quit turning it into a shopping mall. The the temple was to be a place of meditation. A place of sacrifice. Of access to, to God. A place of prayer. A place of thinking high thoughts about God. The temple was a place of praise and adoration to God. The focus was to be on God to exalt God, and that had been squeezed out by, we're going to see here in a moment, livestock sales. Money-changing tables where they're bargaining for the amount of commission that should be charged for changing money. True worship had been lost, had been lost, and Jesus steps into the picture, steps into the temple, my father's house, he says. He steps into the temple because Israel's your problem is not a Roman problem. Your problem is a God problem. Your problem is you don't worship God. You don't rightly worship God. The narrative changes here in 12 through 22. The narrative changes as you can tell. We have gone from choosing these or calling these men to be disciples at the end of chapter 1, or them calling each other, I should say, them recruiting one another to be followers of Jesus, to the wedding at Cana where he changed the water into wine. You saw that last time, and now it changes here, beginning in verse 12. um, The change of place and change of time changes. See verse 12? He went down to Capernaum. Capernaum is about 16 miles from Cana, east, northeast, north shore, northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It would eventually become the headquarters for Jesus' ministry in Capernaum. We're told that Jesus did have brothers, and we're even told that he has sisters in another place. So, so much for the perpetual virginity of Mary. Mary had other children. Jesus, her firstborn, but not a father. The father was not Joseph, but these are Mary and Joseph's children. These are Jesus' half-brothers. They're there with him. They're not believers at this point. We don't see them becoming believers until later. We know James and Jude become believers. James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, Jude wrote the book of Jude. Those are his brothers, and his disciples are there, probably the six we met previous in Cana. They're with him. 
And they stayed there a few days, verse 12 tells us. And then it changes once again. We're going to move now to Jerusalem and the condition that Jesus finds the temple in when he gets there. Notice verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Deuteronomy 16, 16 says that all Jews were to attend, all Jews were to attend a number of feasts during the calendar year. The main ones that you would have that would be held in Jerusalem were the Feast of the Booze, Feast of Weeks, which is the same as Pentecost. The Feast of the Unleavened Bread and Passover were joined together. You'd have Passover, then you'd have the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They're tied to the same event, the Exodus. This is the Feast of the Passover. This is the one that remembers when the death angel went through the the. the, the tribe, the the camp of the the Israelites, and passed over the houses that had blood on their doorpost, sparing the firstborn of Israel, killing the firstborn of Egypt. So much turmoil came about because of that plague, that final plague, that Israel was set free and delivered from the bondage of Egypt. Egypt. That's what Passover is remembering, the, faith, the faithfulness of God. And every year on the 10th of Nisan, Nisan being like March, April, Nisan uh, would, would be the full, first full moon and end of March or the 1st of April. You'd choose your lamb on the 10th and then you'd sacrifice your lamb on the 14th of Nisan. But this is something that Jesus did all throughout his life. Jewish males especially would do this. Go up to Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem because of elevation. Every, it's higher than anything. You can be far north and you're still going up to Jerusalem. The elevation is so high there. The year is AD 28, we're going to say. And the reason we say AD 28 is because down further in this passage, you will notice the religious leaders saying this, this, this temple has taken 46 years to build this temple. And one thing we do know is that the temple was started in B.C. 19 or 18. So we're probably talking about A.D. 28 right now. One thing John likes to do is talk about the Feast of the Jews. He mentions those more than the other writers do. He mentions three Passovers, possibly some say a fourth, but three for sure. Three Passovers are mentioned. Thus, the three-year ministry of Christ. Three times Jesus will go to Jerusalem to to participate or celebrate a Passover. John 2, where we're at right now, John 6, and then later in John 11. That's the Passover. He will be the actual Passover lamb and be crucified. The final one. So you have these Passovers. You have this. It's a different Passover than any Passover he's been to up till now because uh, this is the beginning of his ministry. And like I said, he's the true Passover lamb. He's not going to be sacrificed at this Passover, but at a future one for sure. Probably 500,000 lambs maybe more, gets slaughtered at Passover. It's huge. 
It's a huge event, an emotional event. Lots of pilgrims coming into the city of Jerusalem to participate in the Passover. Jesus, his brothers, his mother, the disciples, they all appears, they have all gone together to be there. He comes to the temple, that place I told you about earlier. That's the place. That's the place. Huge temple complex. It's massive. Go online, just Google it sometime and look at how massive it is. The, the complex was just the central point of the city. He goes into the temple. He would have been going into the outer court. He would be going through the entrance of the temple into the outer court known as the court of the Gentiles. I'll explain that in just a moment, but let me say this as a comment. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, meaning seeing together, they compare, they seem to have a lot of events, similar events in their gospels. John has unique uh, content compared to them. But in the synoptic gospels, the cleansing of the temple scene takes place at the end of Christ's ministry. That is the Matthew, Mark, and Luke account of a cleansing temp- of the temple. John is the only one that records the cleansing of the temple at the beginning of the ministry of Christ. Some people have tried to discount it and say it doesn't belong there. You can read as much as you want to on this. I will just say this. It makes sense, total sense, because it's God's word to include it, but also it's a different event if you read the details. You can read it at the end of Matthew, end of Mark, and Luke. You can read the account of the cleansing there. This cleansing is different. There are things said there that are not said here. The best way to see this is it's the, at the beginning of his ministry, he does what he does at the end of his ministry. It goes back to what I said earlier because he's emphasizing the fact that Israel's problem is not a political problem, it's a spiritual problem. And the temple is the issue because that is where worship of God took place. You're not right with God, that's your problem. And that's emphasized by two cleansings of the temple at the beginning and at the end. I guarantee you, cleansing it one day didn't mean it was going to stay clean. It just made a point that I'll show you as we go through this this morning. So, just wanted to make that comment. The basic structure of the temple was that the very center of it was the tabernacle. You remember the tabernacle in the Old Testament was a, a, a tent. You carried it, they carried it with them. They broke it down every night, took it as they traveled. That was the tabernacle. In there you had the holy place, the holy of holies. That is where they would meet God. The high priest would go in there once a year and make sacrifice in the holy of holies. And if he didn't get it right, he was dead. If he sinned in any way while he was there, he was dead. That was in the very middle of the, of the temple complex. On the outside, working your way in, you had the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were allowed in that area, about four football fields, by the way. It's huge, huge area we're talking about here that Jesus walks into. The next area would be the court of the women. And then you had the court of the Jews. This was where men 
And then you had the court of the priest. And then you had the sanctuary, or you had the holy of holies. You had the, uh, the actual tabernacle portion. Remember, Solomon built the first one. Solomon built the first temple. Magnificent structure, but it was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586. About 518, it was rebuilt when the Jews came back from captivity in Babylon. Zerubbabel's temple is what it was called then. It wasn't as massive as, as Solomon's temple. That was built maybe 518, somewhere around there. can't recall the exact date. By the encouragement of Haggai and Zechariah to build that temple. They got it built. The temple that we're talking about right now is an improvement on the Zerubbabel temple. Basically, Herod is remodeling it. It's the Herodian temple. He's been doing it up to this point at 446 years, remodeling this structure, making it more elaborate and more incredible in its architecture. We're 46 years into the project at this point in time that we're talking about here. This is the Herodian temple. This is uh, uh, one that's constantly being improved upon. And that's the temple that Jesus walks into. And so it's huge. It's huge, magnificent. The outer wall, some say, was uh, 875 feet one direction. But you go into this court of the Gentiles, and Jesus goes in there to this place that 1 Kings 8 says is to be a place of meditation, a place of penitent prayer, a place of praise and worship of God. He goes in there and he sees these vendors everywhere. Vendors who are selling animals and money-changing tables to, to, trans, to, to change currency, to temple currency. Those vendors, let me just say this about the vendors. Those vendors were serving a purpose, okay? There's nothing illegitimate about what they were doing. Think about it. You come to Jerusalem to offer a sacrifice. The last thing you want to do is carry your lamb 500 miles from Rome or whatever, or cross the desert from Persia. So it's legitimate to have animals available somewhere near the temple so that you would have to carry one with you. That's legitimate. And it's legitimate to exchange money. That was a convenience. You know what? Everybody that came to Jerusalem had to pay a half shekel tax. And that had to be done with a Tyrian coin. That was what was required because that coin had more silver in it than Jewish money did. And so, basically, two Jews could pay with one of those coins because of the value of it. And so there's nothing wrong with taking your foreign currency and exchanging it for temple money. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not illegitimate business. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what they were doing. Then, and here's one thing that was terribly wrong with it. 
wrong with it though, and I'll mention some other things that were wrong with what they were doing. This, this business, these vendors, they used to be across the Kidron Valley up on the Mount of Olives. You have Jerusalem, the temple, then you have the Kidron Valley, and then you have the Mount of Olives. They used to be, the vendors used to be over there. They used to not be in the court of the Gentiles. And for some reason, they've moved into the temple complex. And keep this in mind, it's not that animals were not in the temple at all. Of course, there were animals in the temple. They were in the temple for sacrificing. So that's not the issue. Animals in the temple, not the issue. Exchanging money, not the issue. Selling animals to travelers who've come from a long distance, not the issue. Not the issue at all. What what Indersheim points out in his book entitled The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, which is an excellent book, and other commentators as well have added to this, these insights, but it was just the opportunists that were on hand to take advantage of the situation. As you can imagine, just think about the opportunities for abuse here. And that's what you had going on. And it's the reason Jesus calls them a den of robbers. He says that not in this passage, but he'll say it later in Luke's account and Matthew's account. First problem, first problem. The worshipers who did not have an animal would go to the temple. Your animal had to be inspected by a priest. If that priest found any flaw whatsoever in the animal that you brought yourself from your farm, from wherever you came from, and he decided that there were imperfections in that animal and there was blemishes in that animal or he saw some kind of deformity, he would say, no, this is not an acceptable sacrifice. The problem was priests were abusing that because that what they wanted you to do was go over here and buy one of these temple-approved animals to which the temple priests were getting a kickback from, were profiting from themselves. I, I'm not saying every priest was doing that. I'm just saying these were the type of abuses that were taking place. That's called racketeering, by the way. When you fraudulently solve a problem you create, not acceptable, but I know what you can do about it, go to this vendor right there inside the court of the Gentiles and buy you an acceptable sacrifice. Those are temple-approved sacrifices. Second thing would be, let's talk about the money that you'd be exchanging for the temple coin by the money changers. Um, the exchange rate was 12 per, up to 12%. Now that, you know, I don't know if that, that's a lot. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot. Yeah, that's a lot. But think about these people. They have no choice. They have to change their money. You're doing this to your own people. You're charging them exorbitant interest rate to change their money from a Roman coin or wherever you're from something that has Caesar's face on it definitely is not acceptable to the Tyrian coin that was acceptable. You're extorting money from people who are in a situation they can't do anything about. They have to do this. 
And then there's the selling of the animal in the temple at an inflated cost. Indershine points out that you could pay $4 for a pair of pigeons that would normally cost a nickel. It kind of reminds you of um, flowers at a wedding. Follow me? You call those wedding flowers, the price goes up, right? You call that a temple animal, a sacrifice animal, the price goes up. Same thing. Extortion, taking advantage of people, like going to a football game, FSU football game, $5 for a hot dog, right? And you go, well, I could go home and buy a whole pack of hot dogs and all the condiments. You see the idea? Extortion because of where you are. You're in the temple. This is a, oh, temple sacrifice animal price would be shot up. Endersheim is a whole section on that. It's interesting. This is the temple. You don't get to pick and choose. You had to pay those prices. You had no choice. You had to make that sacrifice. These vendors were were there and they were exploiting people. And that's the problem. That's the problem. And the, the other problem is you brought this into the temple itself. That's the, it's, not on the, it's not outside the temple. You've turned my father's house into a place of merchandise, of marketing, of bargaining. The focus is not on worship of God. It's on getting the best rate. It's on trying not to get taken advantage of. You've taken the focus off of what the temple is all about. And so, they, they, they were probably doing it across the valley as well, extorting people, but now it's right here, right under the very nose of God. It's happening. And Jesus doesn't hear prayers. He doesn't hear songs of praise. He doesn't, he, he doesn't hear anything about people crying out to God in worship. And adoring God. He's just hearing sheep bleeding and cows mooing and bargaining going on everywhere. People getting swindled. Den of robbers. Den of robbers. So he sees that. That's that's what that's what verse 14, excuse me, that's what we saw in uh Verse 14, he found the temple of those who were selling sheep and oxen and doves and the money changers seated their tables. And notice what he does. He made a scourge of cords and drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the coins on the money changers and overturned their tables. He makes a whip. Maybe he found rope on the ground. Who knows? Cords, put them all together. He makes a whip and he, he says, take these things away. And he starts... Folks, he's not abusing an animal. That's how you make an animal move. That thick hide of a cow or ox or whatever. He drives them out and he drives the people out and he turns over the tables and people are scrambling and he he drives them out. and, and, And see, this is really a bigger deal than Hollywood sometimes depicts it. Jesus in the temple chasing the money changers and and vendors out because we're talking in four football fields. Now, I'm not saying every square inch of that quarter of the Gentiles had a vendor. I'm just saying it was a bigger area than what you sometimes see 
This is huge. And Jesus is responding to all this greed by taking up these cords and chasing them. Notice it says, all out. Verse uh, Verse 15, excuse me, verse, uh, yeah, verse 15. And he made the scourge and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. I dare you to desecrate my temple. I dare you. I don't think this was an out-of-control anger like you and I get into sometimes. I think this is very controlled. Righteous indignation for the glory of God. This was not about Jesus person about Jesus personally. This was about God and his glory. That's what he's saying by what he does. Take these things away. And you've got ima- you to imagine the disciples are watching this and are in shock. What have we gotten ourselves into? I mean, it had to be shocking to watch Jesus. Jesus mild and meek. Jesus driving out. All of these people in the most important place on the planet, the most powerful religious place to the Jew on the planet, and Jesus is driving them out, and nobody is stopping him. Nobody is stopping him. And then we go down to verse 17. His disciples remembered, and not sure if they remembered it then or if this is later, but they remember Psalm 69. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. David in that psalm is writing about his own persecution. He's writing about people who think he is too devout to the Lord in the Lord's house. He is talking about people who want to stomp all over God's glory. And David just simply says, uh, I take it personal. I take God's glory personal. I have a zeal for God. I don't want God's name desecrated in any way. And they attribute that to the greater David, Jesus Christ. And I want to show you one other place. Go to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. So you see the scene. You see Jesus' righteous indignation. You see him having great zeal for the temple. You can come to Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. And this is interesting. This is a prophecy that Malachi gave at the end of the book of the Old Testament, end of the Old Testament. He says, behold, I am going to send my messenger. This is Malachi 3.1. Send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messengers of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The first part of that is John the Baptist. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger and he will clear the way before me. And then it says, and the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He is coming to clean up the place. He's coming to cleanse his temple. Now, I believe there is future to this and there's also this current situation here. There's a future time when Jesus will do that in a temple, but this is the time, this is the near time. For them. This is at his first coming. He is doing this. 
He, sit, he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. See, Malachi sees this coming, and anybody who knew the scriptures would have known this, that this is a messianic action, that they are looking at Christ doing something the Messiah is going to do. This is an important understanding of, of this whole scene. The messianic implications of it. Jesus is doing what Malachi said the Messiah would do. Going into the temple and purifying it. Going into the temple, fuller soap, refiner's fire, cleaning the place up. That's important. And I think, and I think you would have to say the priest knew this. That he is claiming to, do, he is claiming to be Messiah by what he is doing here. Look at what they say to him in verse 18. The Jews said to him, What sign do you show us as to your authority for doing these things? What sign do you show that you have the authority to do what you have done? Are you claiming to be the only guy who can do this? And that's the Messiah. Is that what you are claiming? They knew about a guy named John the Baptist out in the desert who was talking about a prophet who would come that was greater than John the Baptist. They knew about that. Maybe this was that guy. And they're, getting, they're wanting him to say, are you the Messiah? If you are, tell us so that we can deal with that. But if that is what you are claiming, show us a sign. Show us a sign. I think that's what, we're going, that's what this is about. These religious leaders see this happening and they recall to mind the prophecy of Malachi that the Messiah would come and do this in his temple. In his, and he calls it my father's house earlier. So this is a messianic act. This is a messianic act. I think it's the reason nobody touches him. I think it's the reason he gets away with it. I think it's the reason he is able to be so thorough in what he does. It had to be an incredibly shocking event to take that large of an area and to clean it out, all of it out. Something only the Messiah does and the only the Messiah had the authority to do according to them. If you are the Messiah, then prove it with another act, with another sign. That's what they're asking for. If this is the one, he better be able to prove it. He better be able to prove it. And that's something they regularly ask Jesus to do, by the way. Show us a sign. Uh, that's what all skeptics do. I got to see a sign. And their reason for a sign was so, not so they would believe in him. Their reason for a sign was just because they like signs. Evil and adulterous generation. We want to see another sign. Forget that I've done thousands of miracles. You still want to see a sign. They keep asking Jesus to show them a sign all throughout the Gospels. Matthew chapter 12. The Pharisees said, we want to see a sign. Jesus says to them, I'll show you no sign except the sign of Judah. Excuse me, the sign of Jonah who spent three days and three nights in the earth, in the, excuse me, in the belly of the whale. That's the only sign you're going to see. 
Matthew 16, same question. He gives the same answer. The only sign you're going to see is the sign of Jonah. And that's the pattern that starts here. Uh, He says in verse 19, destroy, look at verse 19, destroy, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. That's the only sign you're going to see. Destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews say in verse 20, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. See, they're thinking temple, he's talking temple. They're thinking the structure, he's talking about the temple of his body. He's talking about, he's talking about John 1.14, the word became flesh. He's talking about God in this temple, God in this body. That's what he's talking about. That's John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. I am the temple. He's, they don't see that. They don't know that. They don't understand it that way. In fact, at his trial, they're going to say he threatened to tear down the temple. He threatened to destroy the temple. Thinking back to this event when he said, Destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it up. They're thinking he's talking about the building. He's not talking about the building. The Jews say in verse 20, it took 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. You see, they're thinking the building. The temple, by the way, the temple was actually finished in AD 63, not AD 28. The temple wasn't finished. It had been 46 years up till AD 28. The temple was actually finished in AD 63. Seven years before the Romans destroyed it all. But with Christ, they weren't going to need a temple anymore anyway. When Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, the temple was unnecessary. No more sacrificing was necessary. But Jesus said, the only sign you're going to have is my resurrection. My resurrection. So he's directing them to his resurrection. Verse 21, he was speaking of the temple of his body. And verse 22 says, and so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. This is messianic, pointing to Christ as the Messiah. They're sitting there watching all this. These disciples are watching all this, hearing all this. They remembered Jesus said these things later after he was raised from the dead. Notice it attaches the scripture to the words that Jesus spoke. The confidence, their faith was built, their confidence in Christ, their confidence in the word of God was strengthened because they saw it fulfilled that day. They saw it fulfilled in Christ going into the temple and doing what the Messiah would do. They saw it fulfilled in the fact that uh, the prophets had said this would happen. Christ said this would happen, and it all happened. They believed. And the result was they believed. And that's the reason that this was the, the word was their foundation stone. The prophetic word became their foundation stone because they saw it fulfilled and they heard Christ's words fulfilled and they had confidence. And that's where our confidence is. Our confidence is in God's word. God breathed it. God spoke it. 
and God fulfills it. And like I said before, these verses point directly to the fact of John 20, arrows to that target where John is headed so that you might believe in him and have life in his name. I was just thinking of application for us and thinking about this. I'm just thinking about how in our worship, many times, I think we get distractions. In our worship, many times, we put up idols in our relationship with Christ. I think many times in our, in our lives, we allow things to come in that eclipse the glory of God, just like these people were doing. I, I think many times um, we give other things more importance than God in our lives. We have worship disorder going on all the time in our lives. And I think there are times we need Jesus to just come in and shake things up in our life. Don't you? Come in and shake things up, just like he did here. Shake things up. Things are not right. Your priorities are not right. You are not giving focus to where focus needs to be. I think that is a great emphasis for us, a great application for us. I need at times to be shaken up and realize I'm allowing distractions in my life to rule rather than focusing on Christ. That was their problem. They got off into other things. Maybe you've gotten off into empty worship. Maybe you're just going through the motions. We all fall into that at times. Maybe you're just doing coming to church because that's what you need to do to check off the list or to make your wife happy or whatever it is. Uh, maybe you're thinking wrong thoughts about God. Maybe your theology is you're just wanting to worship a God that does everything your way. And it's not going your way, so you just give up on God because it's not the God you want to worship. You don't hear about the God you want to worship from the Bible, so you don't want anything to do with the Bible. Or maybe it's material things. Maybe it's greed. That's maybe it keeps you from hearing God because you're so tied up with greed and covetousness and material things. Things of this world that just sort of squeeze out uh, time with God and time with worship and time to spend in fellowship with other believers. See, that was their problem. That is why Jesus came to that nation. They as a nation had grown cold toward him. They as a nation had departed from him. They as a nation. Now, it doesn't mean there weren't individuals who weren't sincere. There certainly were. But as a nation, the religious establishment was taking them in a direction away from God, not towards him. And he came to be their lamb, the lamb of God, that would take away sin. Father, thank you for our time this morning. Thank you for your truth. Thank you, God, for allowing us to look at this passage and just be reminded of of our Messiah, Jesus, and what he said and what he did. To be reminded, God, that uh, though the, the Jews were in different circumstances, there's still the problems are, are the same. There's nothing new under the sun. We struggle the same way. We deal with the same things. God, may we not allow our hearts to be straying from you. May we keep our eyes focused and fixed on you. You are our only hope. We can't put our hope in anything in this world. Our only hope is in Christ. And we trust him and look to him this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.